0: But before we get there, we're gonna be in John chapter one because we gotta talk about anger or maybe this is gonna be one of those Sundays where I work out my issues in front of you um, and hopefully at some level that's encouraging because sometimes, you know, when pastors go, well, I've really been thinking about what the church needs to hear. Low key, it's usually something that like, I need to hear, right? I would like to think other people need to learn this, but the Lord is usually like, you know, why don't you spend a week on it? So this is probably what may be happening here. But it seems like to me, Anger is everywhere right now. No matter where we look, no matter whether we look interior or we look exterior, anger seems to be all around us. And honestly, I don't think I realized how prone to anger I was until this last season of life that we have been through. Now you may say that COVID or the pandemic created it. I think the more I become familiar with the brokenness in my heart, it exposes a lot of things that were already there. It exposes, there's pressure that kind of squeezes things out that maybe we didn't see before. Um, But then when we look at the prevailing culture, anger seems to be a mainstay, locally and globally. I think there's anger toward racism. I think there's anger towards law enforcement. There's anger towards world leaders. There's anger towards Republicans. There's anger towards progressives or Democrats. There's anger towards immigrants. There's anger toward white people and black people and brown people and all different kinds of people. It just depends what kind of person you are to where you direct your vitriol and your anger seems to be anger toward the church, toward Christian leaders. Anger towards public schools and baristas and our children. Right? It doesn't matter. No one is safe from being the object of someone else's anger. And it doesn't seem like we ourselves, if we're honest, are immune to being angry at someone. In fact, probably right now, you're like, I know how the Lord is going to talk to me today because this person or that group of people is who I am really, really frustrated with. To be sure, there are different types of anger, and we express them differently, express anger very differently. Uh, Psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett explains that you can shout in anger, you can weep in anger, you can even smile in anger. I'm real good at that. I am very good at smiling in anger. We all handle anger differently, and we get angry for different reasons, and of course not all anger is bad, but not all anger should be expressed however we please. And I think that's the tension. What ought we to do with our anger? Well, as Christians, in particular, I think we need to interrogate best we possibly can. We ought to seek to understand by running our emotions through the rubric of the gospel. This is not instinctive to many of us. Usually we have a feeling and we act on that feeling. But what the scriptures teach us, you've got a feeling, run it through the scriptures. Understand that emotion. Understand that impulse. That's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about what anger is and what we ought to do about it, what we ought to do with our anger by going to James' letter to the scattered church. See, James was writing to a group, a collection of Christians who likely had a lot of reasons to be angry. They had been forced from their homes. They found themselves uh, in a new world of culture, a new place of food, of language, of politics, of spirituality and religion. And today we'll learn from what James wrote to that community, what James wrote to this diverse collection of followers of Jesus who are all in different parts of mostly Asia Minor. And near the opening of that letter, here's what he says, James chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, if you've opened there. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James tells them, and by way of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking to us too, because whenever we read the scriptures, we don't have the luxury of saying, oh, that's what they needed to hear. (laughs) That's what that group of people had uniquely going on in them only. But by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's telling us what? Be slow to anger. But then he qualifies his admonition by clarifying that he is talking about what he describes as anger of man or the anger of man. Instead, James calls us to what? To be quick to hear, slow to speak by receiving what he describes as the implanted word. This flow of thought will help us organize our time together as we seek to understand our feelings and experiences with anger. Here's what I'd like to consider today, focusing on what we'll call unrighteous anger. First, we'll look at the nature Of unrighteous anger then we'll look at the source of unrighteous anger and lastly the remedy of unrighteous anger so the nature the source the remedy or if you please what is it where does it come from and how is it healed what is it where does it come from and how do we find healing it's to that end I desire God already my friends and myself included Have been reminded by your spirit where and how we are angry. What gets our emotions? What loses self control? What makes us so frustrated? We might have a way of disguising it and hiding it from our spouse or our neighbor or our friends or our small group. We just can't disguise anything from you, though, because you look to the interior. You know our hearts. And your word is clear for us today that we need to be slow to anger. And so we ask for your help we can't do that without transformation of our soul of you graciously wooing us into your image and likeness more and more and so uh, as i pray for myself i pray for my sisters and brothers as we have that impulse to build a wall of defense and believe that we are the exception to the rule or really begin to think oh i wish this person was here today because they're really angry and they could really hear this word they really need to hear this. Father, before we apply the gospel to someone else, would you apply it to our hearts that we, might help me to be, that we might live it with integrity and humility? Help me to be clear and responsible with your word. Help all of us, Father, to respond with joy and gladness that you are a God who speaks to us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So the fact that we're discussing unrighteous anger, I, I think, presumes that there is a thing called righteous anger right? And I think actually it'd be really helpful for us to consider that first. It's where we ought to begin to understand righteous anger. See, God is perfectly righteous and yet it seems if you open up the scriptures that he gets perfectly angry in a lot of different places. Therefore, we can deduce that he is righteous in his anger. However, for many of us, this is a real issue. When we open up the Bible, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you're young in your faith, this is a hard thing to reconcile. When you open up, hearing this reputation of the God of love, and you open up to places and it seems like he's very angry. Maybe this is violence. Atheist Richard Dawkins said that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And so you're not alone in that principle or in that perspective. How can God be so angry and violent towards something that he has made, toward his creation? Well, you see, even though God is often angry, and not just in the Old Testament, His anger is described almost always as slow, and it's almost always paired with His covenant faithfulness or steadfast love. Like in Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So righteous anger, if we can describe it in two different ways, righteous anger is slow and righteous anger comes from love. See, when God, says that he is, or when God says that he is slow to anger, it's the translation or that idea, that phrase is translated from a compound Hebrew word, which is really two words that have kind of been mashed together. The first is eric, which means to be or to become long, and the second, aprium, which means nose. So literally, God is saying that he has a long nose. Now, what in the world could that possibly mean? Well, when a Hebrew person got angry, blood would rush to their face, right? And their nose would turn red. And so in common parlance, to have a red nose was to be angry. And therefore, to be patient or slow to anger then was to have a long nose. In other words, it would take a very long time for that nose to turn red. You tracking with me? So righteous anger is slow. When God says that he is abounding in steadfast love, he's he's saying that all he does flows from his love. That includes his anger. You see, God's anger burns against sin. Sin is what makes God angry. And in the same way that you and I ought to naturally bubble over with indignation when we see someone being hurt, or someone being manipulated, we get angry out of love for a fellow image bearer, out of an innate sense world, his creation, and it angers him. Theologian D. A. Carson says that where there is no sin, there's no wrath, but there will always be love in God, because righteous anger comes from love. Now, as we mentioned, James is writing in a time when God's people are spread across Asia Minor. And in his opening uh, of his letter, James addresses this letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So this context really helps date the letter, one of the earliest in the New Testament, before the writings of the Apostle Paul, probably somewhere in 40 to 50 A.D. And specifically, we know that James is wrote to Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of religious persecution. Luke tells us that in Acts chapter 11, when he said, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, all of this is helpful to help us understand who and what James is is writing about and what he has in mind about what it means to be slow to anger. He's writing to a people who know the Hebrew stories. He's writing to a people who have been well-versed in a rich theological heritage, Specifically, James readers know that God gets angry, but they know why God gets angry, how how his anger led him in the days of Noah to rebuild the world, to destruct and then rebuild the world in Genesis chapter 6, and how his wrath burned against the Egyptian people in Exodus chapter 7. They knew these stories, and dozens if not thousands more, but they also knew about how out of love, God waited patiently in the days of Noah. He didn't immediately inflict wrath on them. They know how the Egyptian people got ten warnings before his righteous anger brought the severest consequence. They know God's anger, but they know that God's anger is slow. They know he has a long nose. Knowing this shared consciousness, then James instructs them here in James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. Look at it again. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, we've taken time to understand God's character and the context in which this letter is written so that we will understand James' instruction. James is telling them, in other words, be like God. God has a lot of integrity when he delivers a hard word. Whenever we feel like the Bible is instructing us something, it's like, wow, oh, that's really hard. Look at the character of God, and you'll see that he is teaching that with integrity. In other words, he already inhabits that quality. He already has that characteristic. He is never asking us to be and do something of which he is not himself. So he's saying, be like God. As God is slow to anger, you be slow to anger. Is God has a long nose, you have a long nose. And of course, logically, the occasion for this instruction is also really helpful. J- James' readers were really angry. James actually introduces this theme of anger in chapter 1 that is repeated throughout the rest of the letter, particularly these people's anger through their words. Apparently, many of them were not bridling their tongues. We see that in verse 26 of chapter 1. You know what bridling your tongue means? Is not talking when you want to. When you've got something to say and you go, ooh, I've got a zinger, I've got a clapback you won't believe right now, and not saying it. They were saying it all the time. And they needed to be reminded that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness is what he says in chapter 3. They were quarreling and fighting with one another, chapter 4, and they were swearing a lot, chapter 5. So here is a people who are really angry, and one of their favorite ways to demonstrate their anger is just to say whatever they want. And James is like, no. You need to be slow to anger, slow to speak. So James reminds them, here's the character of God. Embody his righteousness. See, by considering God's character, James then instructs, And James' instruction, a picture begins to emerge for us about what unrighteous anger looks like. Unrighteous. Have you ever been angry and then found out some more information later and go, whoa, actually everything I was angry about was fiction. It wasn't even real. That wasn't even true about them or the situation. All of my emotions were a response to a story I was telling myself. Unrighteous anger is like that. It responds without fact-checking. And Unrighteous anger is interested in speaking rather than being curious or hearing someone out. Unrighteous anger doesn't come from love, at least not the love of God. And unrighteous anger is something that we easily detect in somebody else but almost never think we participate in ourselves. Our anger is always justified. Now, let's think about this. Let's be thoughtful about our time. Anger is everywhere. And a lot of anger is exposed and even fostered online, isn't it? Especially through social media. Why? Because social media is designed to speak quickly, to listen maybe. So it's no wonder we often leave a social media session with an experience of some, in some measure of anger. Something frustrated us. Very few of us spend an hour on social media and go, well, that was really good for my soul. Really felt like the Lord ministered to me and I was able to encourage my brothers and sisters. No one ever said that. No one ever said that. You go on social media and go, that person sucks, and I got more reasons why they do now, right? That person has something that I want. Why don't I have that? Wow, they found the right filter. I could never find that filter. Let me go figure out where that thing is, right? That person looks like they're at rest on vacation. I deserve that, not them. Journalist Max Fisher's new book, The Chaos Machine, details this design at length. Fisher notes that social media in general and Facebook in particular are engineered to take advantage of what he calls psychological frailties and vulnerability in human psychology in order to get people to stay online longer. What's that mean? It means that social media is trying to peak your emotions because when our emotions are peaked we stay online longer. Name engagement engagement, it's a feature. Online, in other words, we've all got short noses. That's how it's built. And all of us think that we're better than the system, like I'm the one who's going to sneak past the algorithm and figure out a way to not let this. You're not. I'm not. We are broken in all the same ways. See, that's the nature of unrighteous anger. But where does it come from? Well, the source of unrighteous anger, of course, goes much deeper than the Internet, so please don't hear me blaming the Internet for all of our sin online. It, like COVID, just exposes a lot of things in us. So we have to look deeper, much deeper than our emotions even. Look again at what James is saying. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's not a mistake that we've read this passage for a third time. We continue to read it. We read it slowly so we can even inhabit what it's instructing. See, unrighteous anger, it says, does not produce righteous living or the righteousness of God. It seems that James readers were tempted to justify their ungodly anger, perhaps like many of us. Well, I had a right to be angry because I was tired, or this person knew better and they did it anyway. I just cared too much. They started it, right? Or... I just want my church to make a difference. This is why I'm so angry and why I behave this way. But James says, no matter your motives, unrighteous behavior never produces righteous results. Unrighteous behavior never produces righteous results. I've heard it said this way, that the fruit is the path. The fruit is the path. That is to say that the ends you desire must be congruent with the way you live. If you want to be known as an honest, you want to be healthy. You have to make healthy decisions. The the fruit is the path. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why? Because the anger of man comes from and is based upon unrighteousness. So what does? What does produce the righteousness of God? Well, in a word, love. Remember, God's anger or righteous anger ultimately comes from his righteous love Therefore, logically, man's anger, unrighteous anger, ultimately comes from an unrighteous love, specifically an unrighteous love of self. Now, to be sure, there is a healthy expression of self-love, which I think is prevalent in our common conversations today. So I want to take just a second to explore what are we talking about when we talk about self-love from the Scriptures? Because unless we understand that, all kinds of anger is going to keep spewing out of our hearts and minds based on a love for self and not a love for God and an appropriate love of self. So an appropriate love of self is a rejection of shame and self-hatred. I am deeply encouraged that I think there's a growing self-love sentiment that helps us see our own uniquenesses and our different characteristics as gifts rather than curses. I think we see this in the prevailing culture as well, an idea of a healthy self-love. After all, the commandment to love your neighbor, stems from what? A healthy and appropriate self-love. Leviticus 19 says you shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Healthy self-love is biblical. And we've seen, like, Lizzo has made a career on writing songs about healthy self-love. Ultimately, though, hear this. Here's where Lizzo and I might disagree, believe it or not. Self-love is meant to begin and end with self with me in the prevailing cultural idea. It begins and ends with me. But self-love, appropriately, shouldn't be selfish. And it shouldn't be self-contained. Rather, it comes from something and points to something, specifically divine love. See, self-love comes from God. You see, we ought to love ourselves in light of the fact that God loves us. And he has imprinted us with his very image and Jesus died on the cross for us. That's how precious you are. You are so precious that God made you in his image, and then when that image got marred through sin, he died in your place and for your sins. Sister, you should love yourself, because God sure does. Brother, you should love yourself, because God sure does. I love myself because God loved me first, and he called me very good, and he called you very good. But self-love not only comes from God, it also points to the love of God. Why? Because anything good I could see in myself points me to something better that I can see in God. Do you see that? My self-love doesn't begin, nor does it end with me. It comes from the Father's view of me, and then it goes back to the Father. I love myself because God loved me first, but anytime I go, wow, that's pretty special about me, it's even more special in God. Do you see that? That it doesn't stop with me. That whatever is good and worthy of love within me points to something that's truer, better, and even more profoundly beautiful in God. Well, what's all of this mean in relationship with our anger? Well, I think true and healthy love for self is only possible when our love for God is most central. And when it's not, the tell is, when it's not central, the tell is that we are slow to hear, we're quick to speak, and quick to anger. See, unrighteous anger is an indication that God's love is not central in my life. Unrighteous anger is is an indication that I'm central. When the things that make me angry are different than the things that make God angry, my loves are out of order. Is that making sense? When all of a sudden I can't back up my anger with the anger of God, my loves are out of order. St. Augustine helps clear the fog of this. He was a Christian theologian from North Africa in the fourth and fifth century and he explained this through the language of disordered and ordered loves. We've covered this a number of times before, but I think, again, it's very helpful. August, Augustine explains in his book on Christian doctrine, living an un, a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and partial evaluation of things. In other words, you've got to be honest. To love things, that is to say, in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things equally. When we love what God loves, we get angry with what angers God. And everything which justifies anger comes from ordered loves. In other words, they come from and they point to the righteousness of God. So here's what we must contend with in our own souls today. What's making you angry right now? What is frustrating you? Who is frustrating you? What's agitating? What's making you raise your voice without thinking about it? What's causing you to jump to conclusions? To want to lose self-control, like you visualize yourself losing self-control before you even do it because you believe that that ultimately will take back control. And the question to run through all of that, here's how we run the rubric through our anger. Does God get angry about that stuff too? I, I, I can tell you very few times the things that pique my emotions causes God to sweat. He's not frustrated. Now you might say, well, that's not fair because God doesn't, you know, he's not you know, human. It's like, no, 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 he is. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of what we are meant to be as human beings in him. The things that agitate me just did not agitate him. People accused him, they persecuted him, they didn't listen to him, they didn't obey him, they mistreated him, they interrupted him when he had other things to do. That one, that's very helpful for me to see because I usually put forward a list, I don't know about y'all, I put forward a list for the day and for the week and if you get in the way of that stuff, you're gonna get anger why? Because my anger says we'll get back control and we'll get back to productivity. We'll get those tasks done still. And this is why ultimately in something like you can see in my children or yours or in children in general, or in, you can see an interruption to the things you think are most important. And Jesus constantly was letting kids interrupt them. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. Because it reveals and it exposes unrighteous anger in me because I've loved, it's more important than you. My loves are out of order. My love, it's not just that I have self-control issues or emotions, my loves are out of order. I think if we're honest, our, our anger is often kindled by what we love, not what God loves. By our hearts and not his. And this does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what James is saying. Jesus explained it this way to a group of Pharisees. The Pharisees made a habit of being very angry about stuff that mattered very little to God. And the rubric of their anger was based on moral conformity, their own sort of social power and control and manipulation. Jesus speaks to them in the form of a tree metaphor. And you know he's going to get you if he starts talking about the trees, right? He says this in Matthew 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's he saying? The fruit is the path. If love for self is central, if you are a bad tree, that's what you'll produce. The Pharisees were angry when people were breaking their made-up rules of control. Jesus was angry at the Pharisees because they weren't loving their neighbors. They weren't loving God, do you see? What we love leads to what makes us angry. What we love leads to what makes us angry. So the source of unrighteous anger is an unrighteous self-love. So how is it remedied? The remedy of, uh, for unrighteous anger is a reordered loves. If misguided and unrighteous affection leads to unrighteous anger, then ordered loves or righteous loves lead to righteous anger. It's not that you shouldn't get angry. It's that you should get angry about the right things. Our loves are reordered then when the love of God is central to our self-concept and our view of the rest of the world. This is actually the work of Jesus. Here's the good news for you, Christian. Jesus is about that work. He's about the work of reordering your loves. Professor James K.A. Smith and Lloyd sings with his to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all a vision encapsulated by shorthand, the kingdom of God. Many of us perhaps grew up in a Christian environment or a religious context that said God wanted you to do the right things. Here are the rules, do them. Jesus is your example, watch him, follow him, obey like him. That's not what the scriptures teach, that's what the Pharisees taught. What the scriptures teach us is he wants to give you a new heart, new loves, new longings that lead to new behaviors. In other words, you can't act different until you are different. So religion says, buck up, act differently. Jesus says, I'm going to make you different, and as a result, you're going to live differently. You're picking up what Jesus is throwing down. It's very different. It's very different. See, we could easily add to Smith's list, be angry by what angers God. And the way this change takes place is the substance of James' final comment. Look at verse 21, the latter half. Therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive... With meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I think what's clear is there's an exchange taking place, a transformative one. That James is saying that we need to put away something and we need to receive something. That's the remedy. We deal with our unrighteous anger by putting away something and receiving something else in return. This, I believe, is part of the practical process of aligning or realigning our loves and longings with Jesus loves love. So quelling unrighteous anger, James says, requires putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What in the world does that mean? Well, Paul tells the Colossians, and I think he speaks with a little bit more detail, he says this, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath or anger of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now again, from a religious or even humanistic listening ear, we might hear, stop being angry. Stop being wrathful. Stop being malicious and stop stop talking smack about people, right? Stop doing the things that make God angry. But Paul and James are talking about much more than behavior modification. Notice that Paul says, you used to live like that. You used to be like this. You used to be that. And in the next verse, he calls all of that your old self. And that's not you anymore. And back in James, what we understand then theologically as Christians is to put away something, not to start new habits, but to realize your new identity. You can only live different when you are different. Putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness is like taking off an old garment that doesn't belong to you anymore. That's not yours. That's not who you are. That's not what you wear. Specifically, unrighteous anger is not who you are, brother. That's not who you are, sister. Take it off. The power to realize and continually cultivate this new identity, James says, is by receiving something. Receiving with meekness the implanted word. The language of the secondary command, I think, helps us to see that we're not talking, again, about behavior modification. We're not just talking about you trying harder tomorrow. James is not saying, don't do this, do this. Don't be angry about this. Be angry about this list, not that list. He's talking about a transformation of the heart, a new heart. Specifically, he's talking about a normalized and obeyed, but it's received and it becomes part of you. You begin to think and feel and act in the will and way of Jesus because the word is not just something you hear, it's something that you have become. Again, scholar James K.A. Smith explains, Jesus is a teacher who does not just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. James sees this, I believe, as a fulfillment of what God spoke to Jeremiah when he said, for this covenant, rather this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We put off the old self and we receive by grace the word that makes us new. All of this happens, I think, the power of how all of this can take place is because Jesus took on the righteous anger of God. See, in our sin, the righteous anger of God burned against you and against me, and Jesus absorbs the anger on the cross. You see, God's anger was upon us. It was upon all of us because of our unrighteousness. And not just our unrighteous anger, that is merely one of the host of ways that our sin is expressed. But this is what the cross. Sin makes God angry and we were enslaved to it. But this is what the cross is all about. This is why the cross is the place where we make sense of God's anger and love. Because on the cross, the full wrath or anger of God towards sin was poured out on Christ, the sinless one, out of love for us. See, the cross then not only teaches us how loved you are, but it also teaches us what to do with our anger. Take it to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that we have anger in our hearts toward a sister and brother, a group of people, things that do not make you angry. And in fact, some of the things we hate and cause us anger, you love and are compassionate toward. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So, Father, we ask that you would work on us in this. Not that you would just give us new habits, but that you would give us new hearts. Expose the longings and desires we have that expose we love ourselves more than our neighbor. We love ourselves more than you. But may that not turn to self-loathing. May that be an appropriate self-love that comes from you and points to you. So that we might love the things you love, we would hate the things you hate, We would give compassion to those to whom you are compassionate. And we would be angry about the things that you are angry about. So that we might more and more see your kingdom come, your will done, here in Chicago, here all over the world as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name.